0: As we see that remote ID is part of the UTM system, will be part of the UTM system. There will be a UTM inf- infrastructure in place at that time when it falls into there. That could be absorbed as part of the cost for the network solution.
1: Welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat, where the best minds in the drone world come to engage. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher at Inside Unmanned Systems. Coming to you live from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., with your hosts, Sean Bullard and James Poss.
2: Hello, I'm Sean Bullard. And I'm James Poss. Together, we are inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Sean, what are we covering this month?
3: We're covering what would uh, many say is the holy grail, remote ID. The FAA is expected to release their Notice of Proposed Rulemaking on their remote UAS ID rules in early 2020. And we've reached out to a team of top experts to help us drill down on what all of this really means. Furthermore, in December, the FAA quietly released an RFI to industry asking about their thoughts on how UAS service suppliers might fill in some of the remote ID gaps.
2: All right, Sean. So that's cool. But there's a lot of big words used in there. And and during one of our previous Ops Over People episodes, you gave a short tutorial on the whole rulemaking process. Can you tell us again why it takes federal agencies so long to make rules? I mean, is it really going to take until 2020 to get the NPRM out over two years since the Aviation Rulemaking Committee?
3: Yeah, you know, that's a really good question, James. A notice of proposed rulemaking is only the midway point in a federal agency's rulemaking process. In this case, the FAA has decided it needs a rule for identifying who's flying what drone and where they are flying it. But there's a big catch here with remote ID. DOD, DOJ, DHS and a few other federal agencies have been keen on ensuring the FAA gets this one right on the first try. And therefore we've experienced quite a delay like in like in years. Okay, but but why? Why is it taking years to draft rules on remote ID? So it's it's extremely complicated and it would take Hours for us to explain. Okay, well,
2: um, we have thirty minutes. But okay.
3: okay. <laughs> so it's safe to say the FAA has annoyed quite a few folks by releasing the ops over people rule before the remote ID for small UAS rule, of which we discussed in, okay. in great detail I in that our was earlier. Weird. Se- yeah, yeah. Last month we we covered it in spades. So if our listeners want more detail, please review last month's ops over people series because we dug deep in on the who, what, when, why, and how. Okay, so say again, what is the FAA going to release
2: in 2020 for remote ID? Do we do we know what's going to be in it, or or, or what?
3: So so it all depends on really who you talk to. I mean, I can I can talk to people uh, five different people this week, and I get five different answers. But I can tell you, I believe we're going to see a lot of jockeying going on with the industry. There's interest in expanding uh, low altitude authorization and notification capability, better known as Lance. Lance, yeah, yeah. Then some would like to see ASD. ADS-B leveraged, but don't think it's reality. And then, of course, the cellular, Bluetooth, and Wi-Fi-related industries would all like to play a leading role.
2: Yeah, Okay. Well, that's cool. But what you just said sounds expensive. Who's going to pay for all this?
3: So, James, that's a really good question. Infrastructure is not cheap. Uh, Some would like the federal government to pay for it, while some in the federal government would like to see such responsibility devolve down to corporate industry or even state and local government level to 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 some degree
2: Mm, okay yeah i'm I'm gonna agree with you on this one i think infrastructure is the 800 pound gorilla in the room i don't really see the faa taking lead on building out infrastructure but at the same time they've made it clear that whatever happens they're going to have full oversight of of whatever this thing is we're going to build. That's that's true, right?
3: Right, right, right. And, and I've heard some within the federal government say that when all this shakes out over the next couple of years, the FAA will keep its seat in the cockpit, but someone else on the ground may be flying the plane. Think Google or Amazon.
2: Okay. All right. So, sometime in 2020, according to your intel, we'll see what the FAA intends for remote ID. And, of course, the proposed rule is going to be heavily heavily influenced by other federal agencies like DHS and DOD. And then there's a whole bunch of industries from, you know, new cellular remote ID to legacy aviation systems like ADSB, And they're all vying for a piece of what could be a pretty big pie. There seems to be a lot at stake here, you know, for aviation safety, public privacy, national security and profits. I mean, is that how you see it?
3: Yes, yes, indeed, James. And that's why you and I have invited uh, Phil Kennel uh, to be on Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat so he can set up this month's four part series on remote ID. Providing our introduction to remote ID is retired Rear Admiral Philip Kennel, who is a Senior Vice President of Aviation and Ops at Trivector Services. He is also the chair of ASTM UAS Committee F 38. Developing standards, and he has served as NOAA's Hurricane Hunter Aircraft Commander and Director of NOAA's Marine and Aviation Ops Center. Phil, welcome to Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. Hey, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, Just to
0: give you a little bit of background about uh, what I am and what I'm doing, I was involved with NOAA Aviation for 30 years and started looking at unmanned systems in the late 1990s and supported NOAA operations. my last uh, project with NOAA was Global Hawk project manager, where we used the Global Hawk for hurricane observations at several yes, of the storms did. in the last Very uh, five successfully years. Too. Yeah, thanks. But for the last eight years, I've been involved with uh, UAS standards development at ASTM International.
2: Okay, all right. So a lot of our readers are going to know what ASTM is and what standards are, but a lot aren't. Some code. may not. Yeah. So could you explain ASTM and what it means and and how do you guys do standards? Sure, sure. A little bit of background
0: on ASTM. We're an international organization. We use a proven and practical system to develop standards. We're actually the first uh, standard developed organization that was ever established. We're over 100 years old. uh, 100 years old? Over. Established 1898 (laughs) to do railroad standards. Gosh. No kidding. Did not know that. Never knew. No. So, we're still in the Basically, the transportation business, and we've evolved into even as far as aviation standards and commercial space. Uh, we have over 150 committees, over 13,000 standards published, 30, wow. 32,000 members worldwide from 149 countries. And we do comply with WTO principles as well for standards. Um, and It's really where industry comes together to develop industry consensus standards. And they all participate in a transparent process. It's open to anybody, anywhere. A little bit about F-38. Uh, It was formed in 2003 with a memorandum of agreement with the FAA. And we have currently over 300 members. In F thirty eight
2: alone, and wow. thirty regulators from various regulatory agencies around the world. Okay, so the government is allowed to participate in it. It's just just as an industry. How does that work? Yes, it's
0: open to anybody, industry, academia, and feder- and government agencies as well. Okay, we even have in some of our other committees, we even have chairs from federal agencies chairing the committees as well. But uh, we do have we do have now um, eighteen approved standards and over 25 in development. And the committee is broken down into three subcommittees: airworthiness, flight operations, and personnel. And those are really the three categories you need to get into, get access into expanded operations in the national airspace. We look at those as being hardware-oriented, procedure-oriented, and people or crew training oriented as well.
3: Okay, Phil, so can you give us an overview of some of the challenges related to remote ID and tracking?
0: Sure. When we put the group together, we had to make sure we had a solution based on, on the remote ID arc. That is the guidance that we saw coming from the remote ID arc. Not to mention a lot of the sidebar discussions we've had with regulators as well. Right. And, and some of the challenges there was we, we had to make this compatible with handheld devices. I think everybody knows that they wanted this, this to be a, a, a not an extremely high-tech solution. <laughs> and what right. does everybody have? They have a handheld device, which is a smartphone. We also had to make sure that it was low cost and low swap as well. Right. We wanted to enable the public to participate and be able to identify these these drones as well, because much like uh, a citizen reporting a license plate to the authorities, the authorities start doing the forensics and the investigations. Right. Um, and and with giving the public this access, it also improves access, acceptance by the public and participation as well. But one of the keys was an open protocol, and it had to be interoperable. We also wanted to harmonize this globally. So we, we, we wanted to wow. make sure it was compatible with the European Commission Parliament's Delegated Act. And they have mandated electronic identification, same thing as remote ID. So right. you had
2: international members on the, uh, on the uh, yes, committee we, as well? Yes, we
0: did. And oh, we've also okay.
2: socialized it fairly globally as well. okay And we
0: engaged other SDOs. We didn't want to have folks it's an SDO. standard development organizations. Okay. so okay. we didn't want to have multiple standard organizations developing the same standards right We did a very good job of this domestically in the United States and we're in the process of working on it overseas as well. But uh, one of the key things, we had to remove anonymity from the operator, create transparency and accountability, and still preserve privacy of the individual. And we think with the standard that we put together, I think we answered the mail on that.
2: Okay. I, I don't see any big issues. You've got to harmonize it globally. You've got to remove anonymity you got to protect privacy and we haven't gotten into the technical uh, stuff yet I, I, so this looks I, easy yeah. and
0: I, and i didn't say i didn't say there weren't big issues i said those were the challenges yeah those, that's,
2: those those are pretty big challenges yeah that's what we met head on okay all right so <laughs> drilling back into the challenges <laughs> exactly. here so tell us about the, the, the you know, the rulemaking process for remote idea, it it sounds like you're set up for a little Games of Thrones scenario because you got uh, drone manufacturers that, that, you know, don't want to go at the expense of doing this. You've got, uh, you know, privacy folks that don't want to do this at all. You've got technical camps. I mean, how, how did you get all these guys a- and together? They,
3: they all seem to have their own separate armies.
2: Yeah. And advocates, I should say. Well. Just like Game of Thrones, I'm just saying. Exactly. Well,
0: good question. And that's where ASTM ASTM comes in. You know, we want to build consensus among the industry partners. And a little like herding cats, maybe. Right. We we put together a team. We had all the right people. The subject matter experts who, in each one of these categories, we had Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, LTE, and other, other technologies as well. But we stuck with the scope that we read into the report from Remote ID and kind of reading in between the lines of the regulators as well. So, so we've gotten everybody on the same playing field. We've gotten consensus among the participants. So, and I think we really did a good job of that by bringing everybody together in the same room to hash out what the technical solution would be for Remote ID. Did I answer your question or did I go around and <laughs> you search? You did.
2: <laughs> one more question. Good. Speaking to the microphone, when is this going to be ready? When can the public see it? What's, uh, okay. Tell us where we are on standard making. Okay. It. So, we started a year ago at, at Exponential. He is speaking at the microphone. Huh?
0: Okay. All yeah. Right. Gotcha. A year ago at Exponential. So, it's been about a year. We actually put our first round out for ballot last month. So, in 11 months, we got a draft standard
2: together. Okay. Which is, is that good? I mean, is that normal? Um, that's pretty quick s- that's
3: warp speed standard in, development in policy making. standard
0: development is usually moves at a glacial pace although glaciers move a little bit quicker these days yeah
3: three years is supersonic
0: yeah <laughs> this is hypersonic <laughs> yes. one year is hypersonic. Very,
2: very Noah guy quote there that's
0: good yes. like that, yeah. but if you, if you know this is probably the number one priority of the FAA so we at ASTM we accelerated the standard development we got folks working together meeting twice a week on telecons twice a week for a year to put this together. So, it's out for the first ballot. We're adjudicating those first-round comments at this time. We hope to have those those comments adjudicated within another 30 days, and we'll put it out for a full committee ballot. The first ballot was the subcommittee only, so we got a lot of good feedback, and we're making some changes. The second ballot we hope to have out sometime in June, maybe about or after the FAA symposium in Baltimore. And that'll take another 30 days. So we expect to have many more comments because it'll be a full committee. We'll have access to the vote. Drumroll, please. The final thing will be available. Depending upon the the comments that we get, we hope to have it out and published by the end of the summer. Wow. So public review by by the end of August. Yes, and public review—that's kind of uh, a—that's kind of a term of art that I'm not sure I want to use. Right. It's it's review by the committee. Right. By the committee. However, we have circulated drafts of this document to federal agencies, international regulators, the European Commission, French national authorities, and anybody else who wanted access. Take a look at it to give us feedback. So we've kind of because this is so important, we've opened it up broader to the committee for comments. So, DHS, DOJ, DOD have all reviewed and provided comments. The FAA has reviewed because of the rulemaking, progress, pro, rulemaking process. Right, They're really limited in what they can tell us. There is a firewall there. We, we respect that. But they have monitored what we're doing from day one.
2: Okay. So, I mean, normally in an ASTM process, you'd have to be a member, and then you'd have to be a member of the subcommittee to be able to get access, but you've shared it we, very widely. We have shared it just because we know how important
0: this is. And and being a member of ASTM is really simple. It's it's not a sales pitch here, but it's a $75 membership fee, and you can participate and vote. If you don't want to pay a membership fee, you can still participate. You just don't get a vote. So you yeah. can add comments, you can provide input. It's very open and free the
2: process. Yeah, but if we sign up, you're going to make us work on one of the committees. So You
0: don't you do that for everybody
3: unless you're Mark Blanks.
0: And so. you're going to you're going to make uh, us work for Mark Blanks. So you can still but you can still Mark's you can still sign up, not pay and still work.
3: Right, so. right, right. Is there is there anything in there that you are you are most proud of?
0: What I'm most proud of is that we saw the need for a standard. Um, We saw the need to get this out as soon as possible. Right. And that we've put together a team, a very diverse team from all the different technologies. And within a year, we had a a standard out for ballot. That has got to be record time.
2: That's pretty good. For all, of, all of the comp- challenges and complications you got okay phil we're at a spot where we're going to have to take a break to hear from our sponsor but when we get back let's drill down on just why small uas remote id is so important
1: thank you for joining inside unmanned systems drone beat sponsored by Rodian schwartz a leader in test and measurement for radar and ew satellite technology avionics navigation and guidance Rodi and Schwartz products help protect critical infrastructures with drone detection and defense solutions. Learn more at Systems.com.
3: Phil, I know there are nearly four dozen standards and work items that fall under at least three F-38 subgroups, such as airworthiness, flight ops, and personal training. Why is it so important that we get UAS remote ID and tracking right the first go around?
0: Well, I think if anybody reads the news lately, they've seen a lot of the incursions at airports, and folks are concerned about this from the early days.
2: Well, of yeah, our, we did a whole month. An where entire series. With gap. On, it's a big deal. Yeah. yeah.
0: So, I think security is is quite important, and you're going to need some level of remote ID to support that. Remote ID is really the first step you need to identify the. I hate. I love using this term: the clueless, careless, and the criminal. And when okay. you and when
2: That's you, a good term,
0: though. Yeah, like yeah. That, yeah. And when you come down to it, you know, identifying the criminal and countering that is is really. You really need remote ID is the first step. So a lot rides on this, not only for those security purposes, but remote ID is also an enabler. Ops over people, night ops. Beyond visual line of sight, talk about the holy grail. I think beyond visual
2: line of sight is the holy grail. Right. Okay. So, what? But what do you need remote ID for? For beyond visual line of sight. Why is that so important? Well,
0: you know, if if something's operating out there in the middle of nowhere, is it is it nefarious <laughs> or not? If you're operating near near a power plant, critical infrastructure, law enforcement law enforcement wants to be able to identify that. How do you do that what's the first step remote id signal
2: yeah and And, then not running into those things too is pretty important not running into that (laughs) we we can talk about that there's a whole nother
0: thing about detect and avoid we can get into (laughs) but that's another series (laughs) Ah, so he's he's
2: volunteered (laughs) to come back for a avoid. okay
0: absolutely you guys are recording all this right okay all right but, but but you talk about the importance of remote id we also see remote id as part of utm with the same protocols that are used in both remote ID and UTM. So remote ID is really a fundamental building block for UTM as well. And I think that's one of the next key areas that everybody wants to tackle.
3: Right. Okay,
2: Phil. So we were on the Aviation Rulemaking Committee together. I was a non-voting member for Department of Homeland Security. You know, you were a voting member. Uh, we looked at like 10 different technologies all the way from LTE to getting no flashing lights, which I thought was pretty cool. Can you give us a little insight into what broad tech um, survived the cut and why? Sure.
0: And I, I think the most practical um, technologies that came out of the ARC, and we used, we used the ARC report as our guiding principles, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and based on some of the constraints of that, you know, we looked at uh, broadcast and LTE. Broadcast meaning Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and network the LTE system. And I think both of those are compatible with one of the other requirements that we see is a handheld device. And I think that's almost universally accepted as a handheld device or a smartphone is going to be the, the technology fundamental that we have to look at. So so my bets are that, that Bluetooth, Wi-Fi and network solution okay. are going to come out of the
2: – be part of the regulation. Can okay, we got Gabe Cox coming on last time, and he's going to actually show us – what survived so stay sure. tuned folks sure
0: and and interesting in, enough the european union only dictated right now that broadcasts would be used for their electronic identification however during our um tour last month in europe we had representatives from our uh, our broadcast and networked remote id solutions um presenting to regulators in europe and i think they the light bulb came on and they saw the pros and cons of both and they may be looking more now at a network solution as well together with the broadcast so did you have any other surprises while you were there um in europe or
2: either or the surprise that I had in I'm Europe. surprised that the flashy light thing didn't make it. I like <laughs> that. No, yeah, no, seriously, it would it would flash a binary code. that, that, that But anyhow, sure, sure. Everybody's but, got their favorite tech.
0: Yeah, I I thought that was very unique. I just didn't think it was going to be practical for most situations. But it was the coolest though. It was pretty cool. Okay. There were there are a couple of creative, others. yes. But but when you come down to it, what what's really out there is is broadcast and and a network solution. And the ability of network to feed into UTM, I think, is going to be one of the critical parts. And, and I'll, I'll leave it at that for now.
3: So, Phil, can you give us some insight in how local law enforcement, what role will they play in all of this? Yeah, how are they going to
0: fit in? Oh, they're fundamental. This is done for law enforcement and security, the whole remote ID standard.
2: Really? I mean, local law enforcement, sheriff's office? Local law
0: enforcement. The the standard gives the ability of not only the private citizen to identify just the registration number or the license plate, if you will. Okay. But it gives local law enforcement the opportunity to get that license plate number and all the metadata behind it. So, it'll give the owner, the operator, the location of the takeoff of that platform – as well as potentially what what their operation is at that time. So by having a handheld device, it makes it easily accessible to even the smallest law enforcement departments. So the small police departments in the middle of Kansas will have access by having a handheld smartphone to gain that information and then do forensics or law enforcement okay, activities but, uh, uh, from there. Okay.
2: But I'm not going to have that access as a member of the public. Can no. I buy the
0: app? You, you you the member of the public, here's where This is where the maintains privacy comes into place. So do you want somebody, if your kid is playing with his drone out in the public park, to have somebody go identify that drone and then find out your kid's name and where he lives? Well, and I guess the location
2: where he's flying from. Exactly. Uh,
0: so okay. it was decided, it. no, that it's the same thing as you. if you see a car driving by and the public reports that license plate. He doesn't know who that person is in the car. He doesn't know where that person lives. He, if there's something that they're doing wrong, they report it to law enforcement okay, authorities and then
2: they take law action. Law enforcement has okay, the but, authority But is to, law enforcement going to have to have a warrant or something to go in and get all this information it, or can it just be Same as if a
0: traffic violation was reported to the police department. He goes to his laptop or his cell phone, plugs in the numbers, the information will come up in the database. But he can't do
2: that routinely unless there's... He can do
0: that routinely. Same thing as if you're uh, looking at a car
2: driving by. I guess so. I mean, they they can run your license plates. They can run your license plate. You can run the registration number on your airplane. That makes sense. Good. All right. Good. (laughs) <laughs> okay, so you, you you painted a pretty good picture yeah, here. Yeah. But you painted what sounds like an expensive picture. So bear me out. So if if we go with with the uh, the network solution, the LTE solution, there's an existing infrastructure out there already. That'll be quote-unquote free, but they're going to charge for this. I mean, and if you go with a broadcast solution, there's no infrastructure out there for that. If you wanted to have a network, you know, to where law enforcement could see that without having to go out in the field, you have to put thousands of antennas out. And then how much is that app going to cost to use for the local sheriff's department? This sounds expensive. Who's going to pay for all this?
0: Well, I, I don't see it the same way. So let's take a look at the broadcast solution first. Okay. The broadcast solution is, is virtually the way I see it. It's virtually free to the recipient of that data. You've already got a handheld phone it picks up Bluetooth, it picks up Wi-Fi, you download a publicly available app. Now, we're assuming the standard does not cover who's going to build that app. There's an assumption that those apps will be produced and you can download them to your phone. With the LTE system, so really no infrastructure required, no infrastructure required for the the broadcast solution. And it makes it very inexpensive to the public and law enforcement. As far as the LTE solution goes, Um, There's a lot of instructor already in place. In the standard, we did not decide who would pay for that. That's not part of what we do or was in the standard. We just found the technology solutions for that. But uh, who who pays for the services that the LTE providers will put in place? I'm not really sure how that's going to go.
2: Yeah, but that's you know kind of up to the market. But you did consider cost. I mean, you didn't want to go out and you know do a low cost laser solution or something like low that. low cost, low swap. Now, gotcha. the only thing that that
0: that needs to be addressed is is who's going to pay for the LTE services, and I don't have that answer.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would think that that's going to be um, you know there're three thousand sixty six counties out there. There's fifty states, several territories tens of thousands of cities How do you and townships know all
2: that Sean that's amazing okay
3: uh, you know i'm a student of local government <laughs> yes. The, yes the other item here is that
0: as 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 we see that remote id is part of the utm system will be part of the utm system there will right. be a utm in, infrastructure in place at that time when it falls into there that could be absorbed as part of the cost for the network solution
3: i agree i agree good answer So, Phil, thank you so much for the interesting insight in how remote ID will play out in the UAS world. You've done a great job of providing a clear overview for our listeners. And, James, what will we cover in our next episode? Okay, so we've kind of set a policy baseline for this and how the standards
2: are working. Now we're going to dive into the advocates. So we're going to pick up the network guys first, and we've got Matt Finelli from Verizon Skyward. Uh, We've asked Verizon Skyward to join us on Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat to discuss what the cellular slash LTE industry is doing in the way of identifying and tracking drones. Matt represents one of the leaders in the cellular industry that is pursuing UAS technology, so I'm sure he's going to give us some great insight.
3: Well, folks, this concludes episode nine of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'd like to thank our guest, Phil Kennel, senior vice president at TriVector Services and chair of the F-38 UAS committee. Phil, we wish you the best of luck as you tackle UAS identification and tracking. We can't wait to see what you come up with. Thanks a lot. Glad to be here. That's a wrap for this week's
1: edition of Inside Unmanned Systems Drone Beat. I'm Richard Fisher, publisher of Inside Unmanned Systems, saying farewell from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C.